SAG-AFTRA declared the strike over late Wednesday, ending a historic 118-day work stoppage. Calling it a deal of extraordinary scope, SAG-AFTRA puts the valuation of the deal at more than $1 billion. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, what did Hollywood actors actually win? We've got a report from KPFK's Working Voices. Then. We are temporary workers wearing their uniforms, driving their trucks, but we somehow do not represent Amazon, which makes no sense. The Working People podcast Maximilian Alvarez reports from the Teamsters picket line at Amazon's BWI 5 warehouse in Baltimore. There was also a Yemeni farm worker who was the first farm worker that was killed in the movement to create the United Farm Workers. Uh, union, right? And if you see pictures of his funeral, um, like the community came out with like the flag of um, the UFW union, the flag of Yemen, and pictures of Abdel Nasser, and I think also Palestinian flags. From the Labor John podcast, the history of Zionism, anti-Zionism, and the American labor movement. Four employees said he sometimes played with a novelty flamethrower and discourage workers from wearing safety yellow because he dislikes bright colors. Elon Musk recently said that in the future, AI will save us all from having to work. Maybe so, but in the meantime, the Labor Force podcast reports that injuries are soaring at SpaceX, victims of Musk's rush to Mars. Earlier this month, the Union Solidarity Organization, Australia-Asia WorkerLinks, AAWL reported a victory for sacked Sri Lankan union leaders after 11 years of court action against Australian-based multinational Ansel. That report from Stick Together, the Melbourne-based podcast. That's all coming up on the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. Welcome to KPFK's Working Voices Program. I'm Joe Ayala, president of Neighbor TWA Local 53. And I'm Janine Roan, independent producer and production manager. We have a great show for you today. We have the latest new tentative agreement between SAG-AFTRA. On today's episode of Working Voices. SAG-AFTRA declared the strike over late Wednesday, ending a historic 118-day work stoppage as of 12.01 uh, a.m. early Yesterday morning, calling it a deal of extraordinary scope, SAG-AFTRA puts the valuation of the deal at more than $1 billion and says it includes above pattern 
minimum compensation increases, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation that will protect members from the threat of AI, and for the first time, establishes a streaming participation bonus. Additionally, caps to members' pension and health plans have been raised substantially, and there are outsized outsize compensation increases for background performers and critical contract provisions protecting diverse communities, according to a letter the union sent to members shortly after the deal was announced. Um, so we uh, we actually could read the letter, but I'd much rather go to Justine, who was, um, she was the AI advisor was, is, uh, AI advisor to SAG-AFTRA Negotiating Committee, yes. Justine. We have our... Justine Bateman with us today. Good, good uh, Welcome back, Justine. Nice to, uh, good to hear you. Hi, guys. You know, when they say that they've done a, a, a landmark groundbreaking agreement, I mean, anything where AI is mentioned at all is going to be sort of landmark and groundbreaking because that language has never been in any of the SAG contracts before. So I... I, I just I'm going to withhold my celebration until I see what the actual language is because the language that I saw that what the AMPTP wanted in the rounds that I was privy to um, were extremely dehumanizing and disconcerting. So I'm going to use that word for the third time. <laughs> um, so I, I I would love to see the details and um, because if you are replacing actors. And you're not you're then you don't have a set, and then you don't have a crew. So this is really going to affect all of IATSE and Teamsters as well, um, whatever this AI agreement is. And none of the all the other gains will only matter for about a year if if AI is sort of given away. And we'll see. Yes, indeed. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, of back and forth going on right now. You know, especially about AI. Uh, it's it's a um, I mean, it is disconcerting because it's not a um, something that's going to be sustainable for for human beings. I mean, it's great for computers. It's great for uh, business owners, or, or in this case, uh, the CEOs of these gigantic conglomerates and corporations. But it doesn't help the uh, working people. So it's a. I hope that the, that uh, SAG-AFTRA did negotiate or was able to negotiate up. Uh, the AI language to to be equitable for those for those people who are on the gr- you know boots on the ground the, the actors and the and the and the, the performers so uh, they'll they're, they're able to get some kind of uh, um, justice out of this uh, these four this I mean, long look, four the months. Bottom line, bottom line is that the the Screen Actors Guild represents a collection of human beings. So any language in there that gives permission to replace the human beings with Humanoid AI objects. Something like negotiating with a cannibal and just sort of talking about just how your feet are going to be cut off and whether they'll be broiled or boiled or <laughs> and what kind of sauce you're going to be putting on them. You know? Exactly. Because, I mean, we'll see if that's in there. But if, if any of that kind of language is in there, then it's almost like you're negotiating on behalf of non-union actors or something. It's even worse than that because at least non-union actors are human. Exactly. Thank you, Justine. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our show. Once again, I'm Joe Ayala. Have a great weekend.
Corporate greed has got to go. Corporate greed has got to go. Corporate greed has got to go. Welcome everyone to a special on the ground episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and the Real News Network. My name is Maximilian Alvarez, and it is about 6 p.m. on Wednesday, November 8th. And I'm currently standing outside of Amazon's BWI 5 warehouse in Baltimore, where workers and organizers with the Teamsters are leading a picket about 20 feet from where I'm currently standing. You can probably hear some of the chants in the background. This picket is an extension of the unfair labor practice strike by unionized Amazon drivers and dispatchers at the DAX-8 delivery station in Palmdale, California. According to the Teamsters, in a press release that we will link to in the show notes for this episode, quote, in April, the 84 workers in Palmdale organized with the Teamsters, becoming the first union of Amazon drivers in the country. As members of Local 396, they bargained a contract with Amazon's delivery service partner, Battle Tested Strategies. Despite the absolute control it wields over BTS and workers' terms and conditions of employment, Amazon refuses to recognize and honor the union contract. Instead, Amazon has engaged in dozens of unfair labor practices in violation of federal law, including terminating the entire unit of newly organized workers. The Amazon drivers and dispatchers began their unfair labor practice strike on June 24th of this year. They have picketed over 20 Amazon warehouses around the country, including warehouses in California, Connecticut, Georgia, Michigan, Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey, end quote. So I am here for the Real News Network and working people to talk to folks about the ongoing fight by Amazon workers to hold this international behemoth accountable for its rampant labor violations and its repeated attempts to thwart efforts by their own by its own workers to exercise their right to organize. Yes, hello. My name is Dion Anthony Steps, part of the local 396 labor's union and also a current but temporary worker for the Palmdale Amazon facility. Oh yeah, well, man, thank you so much, Dion, for, for standing here and talking with me. I wanted to ask if you could just describe to people listening to this uh, where we are right now. What's happening uh, just 10 feet away from us right now? Currently, we are in Baltimore, and we are here as an extension for the Palmdale Local 396, and we're trying to do a practice strike for the labor union. And what that entails is just showing Amazon that we as workers are fed up with the guidance that they try to give us and telling us that as we are temporary drivers, that we do not represent Amazon, even though that we wear their uniform, drive their trucks, and we deliver their packages while conforming to Amazon safety without getting any of the benefits or respect that we feel like we deserve. Again, we are temporary workers wearing their uniforms, driving their trucks, but we somehow do not represent Amazon, which makes no sense. Hello, and welcome to the Labor Zone podcast, an oasis of joy and learning, where one may escape from the rigors and the woes of the world. My name is Sam James, and I'm joined by Gabe Solidarity Christie, 
Gabe, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing quite well. Uh, and tonight we're actually joined by two other special guests. Um, so if you'd like to introduce yourselves, I'll start with uh, Allison. Hi, my name is Allison Glick. I am a writer and activist living in Philadelphia. And Suzanne? Hi, uh, I am Suzanne Adeli, and um, I'm a lawyer and labor organizer, um, and I live in New York. Oh, welcome. Uh, so we wanted to bring you on so that we can talk about the history of both uh, anti-Zionism within the labor movement uh, and also how labor institutions have contributed to Zionism. One thing that had struck me in reading, I think, uh, Michael Lentman's uh, writing on it was the role or the amount that the Histrodut had to actually prevent solidarity from growing on the ground, um, that they had to actively suppress, like, uh, he, or there was one mention of Jewish housewives just wanting to go and shop at Arab stores and that it was Hishrodut members that had to go and physically prevent that from happening to prevent any kind of cross-cultural uh, collaboration happening. Um, yeah, that's right. And the Hishrodut itself would, I think, even attack its own members, if not you know, physically, um, in other ways to prevent them from hiring Arab labor um, at one point in its history, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so those relationships were seen clearly as a threat, um, to the project. I'll talk a little bit about the Jewish labor committee, uh, and it's founding in 34 as a specifically, a base, a, uh, anti-Nazi and anti-fascist labor group within the U S mainly pulling from the uh, Jewish needle trade unions up in New York city. Um, but that they stuck to the Bund or the Jewish labor bunds line of not, it wasn't necessarily explicitly anti-Zionism for the Jewish labor committee. Cause they weren't as involved in the politics of the period, um, aside from anti-fascism. Uh, but they had a, or the idea that the, Jewish question had to be solved in the country that Jews lived rather than through uh, settling in Palestine. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, that then very quickly changed to an almost complete about face in the post-war era. Um, And that I've, I'm still trying to suss out exactly how that happened um, from my best guess right now uh, was probably a mixture of their pre-existing anti-communism um, that the both the Bund and all of the Bund-aligned unions in the United States uh, were fairly strongly anti-communist going back to disagreements in the beginning of the Russian social democratic labor party. And it's, that's a whole nother long history that we do not have time for. Uh, but the, uh, especially in towards the 
end of the 40s, uh, there were a lot of fairly left-leaning unions that were willing to participate in uh, the D's, uh, the D's Commission and the uh, House and American Activities Commission to attack their communist former comrades. Um, and that ended up aligning a lot of these unions with uh, kind of the U.S. state, which was then also aligning itself with the newly formed uh, state of Israel. Institutions like Hestadra were actively lobbying um, kind of through their relationships with the trade unions, right? Um, and utilizing the trade unions in the United States to they themselves lobby the U.S. government for a change in policy. But I think that more than that, it, it just also reflected the kind of political changes that were just going on in, in, in the labor movement itself, right? Just kind of mm-hmm. the, those decades of weeding out commun- communism, the decades of like weeding out kind of like more kind of rank and file kind of an empowered kind of like um, critical perspective about like what labor leadership is doing, like, you know, and, um, um, and so as, as that changed, you know, so did um, kind of the creation of more hierarchical unions who kind of like were then uh, responding um, to this call to support Zionism. Within the Jewish community itself, there was the sort of hierarchical um, German Ashkenazi Jews who were um, watching with horror as these, um, you know, the rabble of the the kind of Russian pale were immigrating into the United States. They were, you know, largely quite poor, quite, um, you know, they were they were laborers. And they had a different take on what it meant to be in this country than their um, largely German Ashkenazi um, brethren, so to speak, who had immigrated many years before. And I think um, that history became the history of what you see in the Jewish community today in, in some respects, that they were the founders of the mainstream uh, Jewish organizations that became um, the American Jewish Community, the ADL, the uh, APAC. Um, they were the 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 that they were the genesis, so to speak, um, the the ideological genesis um, of the organizations that we see today that fight so vehemently against those supporting Palestinian rights. And at the time, that included making sure that these radical, you know, Jews from the Russian pale weren't too radical here in the United States. And what could we do to, again, you know, sort of discipline them, to assimilate them, um, and to bring them into their ideological sphere of what it meant to be an American. And I think that um, plays a part in this uh, as well, in terms of the challenges that were faced um, throughout this history, when anti-Zionism was essentially abandoned for a full-throated Zionism that we see today. I think um, 
that or that analysis lines up really well with uh, Philip Nicholson, uh, author of Labor Story in the United States, because um, he talks a lot about how there was a a like move towards not quite respectability politics in the labor movement post-war, but a basically the elected labor leaders had gotten comfortable being in positions of power and had started to seek more proximity to the power that existed. And that's how, or at least in his analysis, um, he argued that that's how not only they allowed themselves to get, uh, wiped out in HUAC because they were feeling much more comfortable than they probably should have been and should have been able to recognize that their positions were fairly precarious. Um, but those that survived the McCarthyism were willing to cozy up to the imperialism that was growing, um, which then also would tie that whole movement into Zionism. Absolutely. When I was researching, um, this moment in history, I found also a flyer from a 1974 UAW convention in which that was passed out by the Arab Workers Caucus, right? Uh, and it had like a, a platform that they were presenting, uh, which was calling for, you know, basic health and safety conditions in the job, anti-discrimination um sort of like policies in the job, but it was calling also for, um, you know, anti-racist sort of solidarity, but also it was calling for workers to, and for the union to organize itself in solidarity with the movement for self-determination of peoples of the global South. Right. So there was a kind of internationalism, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, That place in that moment, right. Um, or not just in the labor movement, but I think in our movements as a whole, right? That we don't necessarily see. It's not that there's there is internationalism in in in, the, in labor now, but I think it's 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 a bit different, right? And it also just kind of like reminds me of, um, you know, um, not too long before uh, that, uh, there was also a Yemeni farm worker who was the first farm worker that was killed in the movement to create the United Farm Workers uh, Union, right? Or, or to, to win collective bargaining rights for farm workers in California. And if you see pictures of his funeral, um, like the community came out with like the flag of um, the UFW union, the flag of Yemen and pictures of Abdel Nasser, and I think also Palestinian flags. I think that one of the things that Labor for Palestine has been thinking about is is calling for like a national day of action for labor, right? Um, We might actually end up um, like attaching that to another national day of action that's recently been called by some of the Palestinian groups, but so just sort of do a labor-specific one. And the idea is like, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I run a, a an alliance of like 33 worker organizations that have different levels of precarity, right, from worker centers to unions. And so whenever we have an act, like a kind of a, a day of action, we give people an opportunity along a spectrum of different ways to participate, right, from just like wearing a particular color or wearing a button to walking out, like, you know, really kind of depending on the level of power that workers might have. 
because we know that like there's a lot of situations where workers have little power in this country, you know. Um, and so that's one thing that we're hoping to do it and just sort of see what happens. It's interesting to know, um, as someone who is not well versed in any of this, as as you three are, um, that this situation that we're going through right now did not start and end on October 7th. This has been going on and it's a lot more convoluted than people think. So people Mm -hmm. really need to get out there and um, listen to what's going on and uh, read the history. So I appreciate both of you coming on, Allison, uh, Suzanne, and um, educating me and educating our listeners. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. Welcome to the Labor Force Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Strukin, proud member of New York State United Teachers, celebrating 50 years this year. Elon Musk recently said that in the future, AI will save us all from having to work. Hopefully we colonize outer space by then, or that will not be true for SpaceX workers having to feverishly toil to let him claim that distinction, which he would surely do and never mind the labor that actually accomplished it. A new investigative report from Reuters dives into an unforgivable price of progress. At SpaceX, worker injuries soar in Elon Musk's rush to Mars. This is just sheer negligence and hubris, leaving workers to fend for themselves in dangerous working conditions. And that's an understatement. Here's the opening portion of the report. I've linked it in the show notes if you want to read it in full, and I suggest you do. One windy night at Elon Musk's SpaceX facility in McGregor, Texas, Bonnie LeBlanc and his co-workers realized they had a problem. They needed to transport foam insulation to the rocket company's main hangar, but had no straps to secure the cargo. LeBlanc, a relatively new employee, offered a solution to hold down the load. He sat on it. After the truck drove away, a gust blew LeBlanc and the insulation off the trailer, slamming him headfirst into the pavement. LeBlanc, 38, had retired nine months earlier from the U.S. Marine Corps. He was pronounced dead from head trauma at the scene. Federal inspectors with the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration later determined that SpaceX had failed to protect LeBlanc from a clear hazard, noting the gravity and severity of the violation. LeBlanc's co-workers told OSHA that SpaceX had no convenient access to tie-downs and no process or oversight for handling such loads. SpaceX acknowledged the problems, and the agency instructed the company to make seven specific safety improvements, including more training and equipment, according to the inspection report. It was hardly the last serious accident at SpaceX. Since LeBlanc's death in June 2014, which hasn't been previously reported, Musk's rocket company has disregarded worker safety regulations and standard practices at its inherently dangerous rocket and satellite facilities nationwide, with workers paying a heavy price, a Reuters investigation found. Through interviews and government records, the news organization documented at least 600 injuries of SpaceX workers since 2014. Many were serious or disabling. The records included reports of more than 100 workers suffering cuts or lacerations, 29 with broken bones or dislocations, 17 whose hands or fingers were crushed, and 9 with head injuries, including one skull fracture, 4 concussions, and 1 traumatic brain injury. The cases also included 5 burns, five electrocutions, eight accidents that led to amputations, 12 injuries involving multiple unspecified body parts, and seven workers with eye injuries. 
according to more than a dozen current and former employees, including a former senior executive. Musk himself at times appeared cavalier about safety on visits to SpaceX sites. Four employees said he sometimes played with a novelty flamethrower and discouraged workers from wearing safety yellow because he dislikes bright colors. The lax safety culture, more than a dozen current and former employees said, stems in part from Musk's disdain for perceived bureaucracy and a belief inside SpaceX that is leading an urgent quest to create a refuge in space from a dying Earth. Elon's concept that SpaceX is on this mission to go to Mars as fast as possible and save humanity permeates every part of the company, said Tom Moline, a former SpaceX senior avionics engineer who was among a group of employees fired after raising workplace complaints. The company justifies casting aside anything that could stand in the way of accomplishing that goal, including worker safety. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can find Labor Force on Spotify for podcasters and select a level, starting at just a dollar a month. Also, please share, rate, and review to help others find the show. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. And speaking of listening and broadening your worker contact, the Labor Force Podcast is now affiliated with the Labor Radio Podcast Network, an indispensable labor source where you can find many more shows like this one. You can check it out at laborradionetwork.org. Until next time, take care and stay union strong. Lachlan here for Stick Together, a half hour of worker stories, union news and social justice issues. We come to you from VCR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation with respect to the elders past, present and emerging. We are coming to you on your community radio station through the Community Radio Network. Two reports today. Earlier this month, the union solidarity organisation Australia-Asia WorkerLinks AAWL reported a victory for sacked Sri Lankan union leaders after 11 years of court action against Australian-based multinational Ansel. We follow this with a look at Australia's broken temporary work visa system and how, if, if immigration policy was at the right setting, there could be a win for both employers, workers and society. You're listening to Stick Together, worker stories and union news, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. When multinational PPE company Ansel, which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, went on a union-busting campaign across its supply chain in Brazil, Malaysia and Sri Lanka, it set in chain a series of actions that culminated in Sri Lankan union leaders being fired and going to court for compensation, a case that went on for 11 years. The case finally came to an end with a victory for the workers. 
the fact that there's some international solidarity out there uh, for workers in this situation, the fact that it's possible to push and push and to actually get a result and not just be dictated to by the company, I think is of significance, um, you know, obviously for those workers, but also for workers generally in that free trade zone in Sri Lanka and, and hopefully more broadly as well. Um, but the, I mean, the PPE industry is just a basket case for our workers' rights, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And um, basically, on a broader level, it's um, what we've got is multinationals holding society to ransom, effectively. And even though this is a win, it brings back the curtain um, and exposes modern slavery. Together. Stick 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 together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. A lot has been said about the flaws in Australia's visa system, with many people caught in a subclass, a subclass of low and insecure work, engineered by the temporary visa settings in Australia's immigration system. Associate Dean Research from Adelaide Law School, Professor Joanna Howes, presentation at the recent Economic and Social Outlook Conference gives a lightning fast account of Australia's recent immigration visa system. She gives us a view of a broken system, how it could be fixed to the benefit of employers, workers and society with a little twist at the end about the transformative potential of immigration. So Judith started by stating that the national interest was the most important objective of the migration program. And I'd, I'd just beg to differ in the sense that I, there are three primary constituencies. There's the national interest. Of course, migration has to benefit Australia as a nation, but employers and working people, so local workers and immigrants, temporary migrants, are also key constituencies of the system. And we conceive this as a, a triple win. In the literature, immigration is meant to be a triple win for all three. But I think what is agreed on in the panel and by the Minister for Home Affairs is that the Australian immigration program is broken and it doesn't it hasn't been working for any of those three constituencies. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with the program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at Spotify or iTunes. You can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by ringing 03 and leaving us a message. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast. Weekly, just a tiny sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show and our social media guru, as always, 
is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. 